Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. We are grateful for Brick Lane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also, the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it. This is the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and it is very much cricket season in Australia where there are border changes aplenty, which may or may not affect the way the Ashes are played. There's the Sheffield Shield. There are changes to the county championship. It has been the opening weekend of the seventh edition of the Women's Big Bash League. Can you believe it, Jeff? Seven years of the WBBL. The IPL has finished. The T20 World Cup has started, depending on how you interpret the start of the T20 World Cup. Either way, we have Matt Roller from ESPN Crick Info joining us for that conversation. Nerd Pledge, as always, in the middle of the show. A new segment thrown in as well. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Good Morning, evening, afternoon, uh, the the middle of the night. 
the Roald Dahl Witching Hour, wherever you happen to be listening in. Uh, yeah, Matt Roller joining the show always brings to mind Matt Roller, Roller, Roller. A uh, <laughs> bit, of, bit of Limp Biscuit. And a special mention to Daniel Hill, a listener who's uh, messages during the week to tell us that during the lockdown, he put on a Fred Durst film festival, <laughs> to which I replied, tell me more, tell me more. I gathered, gathered friends online to watch. Apparently Fred Durst has directed a number of films and has also been in a couple of films, things that I did not know, but I'm now going to have to follow up these top-quality cinematic enterprises that have come to the world via the, the safe creative hands of Mr Durst, German for thirst, and, you know, creatively thirsty. So Daniel Hill has been up to some tremendous creative stuff himself over the last few months. You love to see it. I wonder whether Matt Roller, heavy as he's known to his colleagues, would even be old enough to know who Fred Durst is. It's, it's entirely possible that the young man, who is a T20 whiz uh, and is very much of the modern generation. I quite liked it, Jeff, when mm-hmm. we were the new kids on the block, even though we were probably 30-something at the time, but we were, you know, more or less the new kids on the block in the press box, which we're at Absolutely not anymore, but yes, people like we had Ben Jones obviously sit in for me last week uh, from Crickviz and Matt Roller now, but mm-hmm. yes, they're, they're both in there. Well, in Matt's case, early 20s, and Ben's case, he might technically be mid 20s now, and, and they are generation next. And I don't know where the Limp Biscuit will be kind of in their zeitgeist window. I, I, I reckon there's a, a decent possibility <laughs> here. I have no idea what you're talking about. I. I hope so. <laughs> you know, I really hope that is the case for everybody's sake. I hope that that has receded um, into the, the mists of time as it should have done. Uh, Jeff, but before we get into uh, the main substance of the show, not to say this isn't substantial, by the way, but just quickly on the way mm-hmm. through to our agenda, um, Alistair Townsend's been in touch, who uh, linked us up to the Brazil women's national team earlier this year, our fabulous conversation with Roberta Moretti, who leads the Brazil women. And they are playing this week in the T20 World Cup qualifiers for... I suppose that's for the 2023 tournament in South Africa and we're in the early stage of qualification, which means Brazil's women are back on the field. Yes, as they should be. Uh, Vamos Brazil, if I can mix my languages (laughs) for a moment there. Let's get it done. Look, unhappily, they went down to the USA women in their first match, as is my understanding. But... We also want cricket to succeed in the USA. So as long as cricket is the winner at the end of the day, um, that's, that's all that any of us can really ask for. So they, they play the US twice in this competition, Argentina twice and Canada twice. So it's all played in the space of about a week. We'll keep you posted, of course, as we know from our conversation. They're all local players. I mean, it's a great story uh, where, they, where they've come from, how they've found the sport. So if you haven't heard that interview with Roberta from earlier in the year, I can recommend it from our back catalogue and we'll keep a close eye on what the Brazil women's national team are up to ahead of our Dare to Dream tour, uh, which will probably happen at some stage next year uh, based on the way that COVID and vaccine rollouts and all the rest have been going. Jeff, I see here you've popped into the agenda an ICC Mm. media statement. Now, I don't know where this is going, but I suspect it might be in line with some of the CA statements you've detailed recently. May I I just share this with our audience? (laughs) I want you to have the benefit of this beautiful piece of prose. The International Cricket Council announced today that it has entered a multi-year strategic partnership with NEOM, a leading global financial technology infrastructure company. NEOM will promote its association across broadcast and digital platforms, as well as execute unique fan and client activations at these ICC events. Looking forward to that. (laughs) This partnership will enable NEOM to engage the global cricket-loving business fan base. You know the business fan base, the global cricket-loving one. Engage that. 
co-founder and CEO Prajit Nanu said, we are beyond excited to join forces with the ICC as a unique B2B commercial partner. Cricket's appeal transcends countries, currencies and cultures. This partnership allows us to showcase our fintech innovations on a global stage and to engage cricket-loving technologists in the development of new programs to advance the global game experience. Now, if at the end of that anybody can tell us what the living fuck these people are doing, (laughs) uh, then you deserve some sort of prize for linguistics because there is no information in that, but there is a lot of innovation. Yeah, I think that, uh, well, they've done well getting it read out in full by you there. At least we knew expressly what the ICC were up to when putting out a statement the week before announcing their cryptocurrency partner. I love how there's, Mm. you know, there's the official beer, the official wine, the official vodka, the official gin. Now we've got the official cryptocurrency partner. So Mm. all those crypto... Crypto bras will enjoy, uh, I, I suppose, that they, they might use that platform to, to trade and to do all the other things that people do in that part mm-hmm. of the internet, which I do not understand and don't propose that I understand anytime <laughs> soon. But on, on that tangentially, if you still want to farm your way to get one of those non-functionable, what's that word for the token? Non, <laughs> non-functionable tokens. Fungible. The fungible. Fungible tokens. It cannot be funged. Right. There is no way to funge it. It so, will be unfunged. <laughs> so while I'm criticising crypto, if you want to find a way to help me monetize that photo I took of the Indian national team as they won at the Oval, I'm all ears. Anyway, thank you, Jeff, for that. On to uh, the Ashes, of course, given it's only, I guess, seven or eight weeks away from now. They are not going to move the first test from the Gabba. That has been seemingly confirmed uh, today. Ben Horn wrote a piece that I read when I woke up this morning. What I was going to say here um, was that with the Queensland roadmap announced yesterday by the state government and being very clear... The 14 days quarantine is required until 80%. So, again, not unexpected, but the fact that 80% double-jabbed won't be until, by current projections, the 17th of December, so after the test match is concluded... That felt to me like the perfect time to change this up, to show some common sense, to permit the England and Australian teams to avoid 14 days of further quarantine. They've done so much quarantining, so many bubbles. After what New South Wales announced on Friday about no more quarantine for those who are permitted to enter the country, which, of course, these players are via their exemptions from from Border Force and Home Affairs, they could have started the series in Canberra or Sydney, entered via Sydney but gone to Canberra where the ACT government have been clear that from November 1 you can cross over there as if you double jabbed as of course all the players are then they could have gone to Adelaide Melbourne Sydney then Brisbane to finish the series instead of Perth where Mark McGowan the Premier of Western Australia said clearly last week that players are not going to be exempt from the provisions they've set out for, 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 for those crossing the border in other words they're going to have to do quarantine there's no time to do quarantine between the Sydney test and the Perth test as it's currently scheduled. So at the moment, that can't happen. So why not move the Brisbane test to the fifth test where they definitely will get in without requiring further quarantine and the England team and the Australian team can avoid this additional 14-day impost. But seemingly that hasn't happened and I can't for the life of me work out why more pressure wasn't exerted by the ECB and even by the Australian Cricketers Association to say, look, look after our players here. They've done it tough the last couple of years. They don't Mm. need to be in a hotel for 14 more days. They can be in the community and here we are. The one shift in that with the Queensland regulations for coming into Brisbane is that they won't need to do hotel 
they can do Community. a version of home quarantine. Yeah, that's right. So it's a little less onerous in that you can choose your own place of residence. You can find somewhere comfortable, somewhere with outdoor space, you know, somewhere where you can get out in the garden and, and so on. But you still essentially are confined to those premises. You know, you still can't go down the shop. You still can't go for a walk beyond the perimeters of the place that you're in. So it's it's better, but it's not ideal. And as to why CA is so stubborn about keeping the schedule that they've got, it it's very hard to understand this organisation sometimes. I mean, Cricket Australia is a body that has done some good things and done them well, uh, has done some disastrous things and done them incredibly poorly uh, and it continues to have a pretty mixed record on both sides of that fence. But this this falls in the latter camp. This is just absolutely bonkers to be trying to... I mean, Nick Hockley was insisting that they were still trying to get the Perth Test match on, which if they managed to get it on would be WA's government agreeing to let the players play the match while being within a completely airtight, biosecure quarantine bubble but being allowed to come to the ground, play on the ground and then be, you know, put in their space suits and, and taken back to their low-orbit hotel or ho- however they're going to work that out over there. So that's the environment that they're proposing putting players into for the fifth test um, in Perth and then also proposing putting them through this additional 14 days of quarantine for the first. That makes zero sense when you've got an option in which none of that has to happen, in which you can come in to New South Wales on zero days. Now, I understand about spreading the virus and all the rest of it, but everybody's had their shots. Uh, Everybody involved in this travelling caravan is safe, is unlikely to be spreading the disease. Most of them have probably had it at some stage already. It just is the kind of stubbornness that we see from CA where there will be a few vested interests pushing for it. There'll be, you know, I mean, Western Australia will want to have a test match and, yeah, fair enough, and why shouldn't they? And I'm sure people in WA would love to be able to go and watch an Ashes test. But when you're in a situation like this where that's what's going to be required of the players, why why is it reasonable to ask them to do that? Why is it reasonable to ask them to go through two uh, intense bouts of quarantine-related or isolation-related uh, situation to put them in that situation? situation for two test matches when you could put them in that situation for zero test matches. It makes no sense whatsoever and it's just Cricket Australia being completely stubborn and immovable again for reasons that they won't be transparent about. They won't say why it actually is that they're so dead set on this, which commercial interests want them to do it this way or why they refuse to be flexible. That you will, We will get the same bullshit about respecting the stakeholders and consulting with stakeholders and, and the usual garbage that we get when they don't want to answer a question. Well, there'll be the commercial considerations, which, as you say, we'll, ne- we'll never be privy to. There'll be the cricket considerations, the let's fucking get them to the Gabba, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, type line, which, you know, on purely cricket terms, okay, but wasn't the key word last year agility? Well, maybe that was more the ECB's line, but certainly world cricket, you know, agility, agility, agility. Well, this is an example where the New South Wales government have fired the starter's pistol on on more lax arrangements. 
they've arrived at the conclusion that living with the disease double vax is perfectly fine for people entering the country, which, by the way, I'm doing. I'm coming into Sydney with my partner, who's exempt because she's Winnie's mum and Winnie's Australian and all the rest of it, which we're perfectly legally permitted to do. We'll step off the plane and have freedom, provided we've double jabbed, PCR test before we leave, PCR test upon arrival, no dramas, we'll comply with that, we'll do what we need mm-hmm. to do. And I can go straight to Victoria after that as well, by the way. So there's this degree of flexibility and common sense governing taking place in different parts of the Commonwealth at 80%. And Brisbane, Queensland rather, are doing that as well. Let's be clear. This yep. isn't some beat up Queensland thing. Queensland are doing the same thing once they hit 80%. Mm-hmm. It's just that... 10 days after the test is scheduled after to the start. Test. It's just They'll be at that point. It's just, it's just unfortunate with timing. Queenslanders are doing the right thing. I appreciate the vaccine rollout is harder in Queensland. It's a more disparate population spread, which means it's taking longer. It takes longer to get from 70% to 80%. You know, f- fair enough. Mm. Fair enough. And but, maybe but, maybe they'll get there faster. Maybe they'll get there before the test match starts. It's possible. Oh, it's, it's drifting. I mean, New South I Wales mean, did it in yeah, it's, 10 it's, days. Unfortunately, it's, it's drifting it's, so badly now. It was going to be the 4th of December on projections. Now it's the yeah. 17th, right? So the probability right. of them arresting that so far is limited. But even if it does, sort of the point I'm making is that even if it does, you can't plan for that. You can't say, oh, well, maybe everything will be fine. Maybe maybe these the players won't have to do two weeks because, you know, they'll sneak in by a day or so either side. But they'll still have to be there two weeks before the exactly. test in order to be doing the quarantine, which means that even if you do sneak it in by December 7th or something like that, it doesn't help anybody. Well, this is it. So, like, take Nathan Lyon, for example. He's not the only one, but players who are based in in Sydney or well, New South Wales slash Victoria, he will need to do two weeks quarantine en route to the Brisbane Test match. The guys coming back from the T20 World Cup, I mean, I haven't spoken to any of the players about this, but they'll be ropeable, surely. I mean, the, the option of going into Sydney and not quarantining versus, I know it's home quarantine, I know it's easier, but the idea of living your life. Now, let's go through the potential reasons. Commercial, one. Again, we're never going to understand that. Stakeholder management, two. Let's go an extra level below that. Board. We saw Earl Eddings knocked off this time last week. I know you talked about that with Ben on the show uh, last week. Because well, in, in yeah, small not part, in great depth. But well, WA, because, well, WA because was the swing vote. According to reports from, hmm. from uh, Dan Bredig and Malcon uh, in the Fairfax Press, or the Nine Press rather, um, a big part of this was WA shifting their support away from Eddings. Now, on that basis, and, and, and a reason cited was CA's, or Eddings apparently, allegedly, was, was of a realistic mindset around the probability of Perth playing out. So thus, he was maybe looking at other options. And they were furious at that, and they contributed to him being knocked off. So is it that? Is it timidity from the administrators and the board saying, we don't want to piss off WA, they've just helped mm-hmm. knock off one chairman? And the same goes for Brisbane. Brisbane, like being the first test match, it's their space in the calendar. To what extent... It's would, their trademark. It's their trademark, exactly. There's been so much success there for Australian cricket over a long stretch of time. To what extent would the Queensland directors kick off if CA said, actually, guys, we're going to move you to the 14th of January? I saw some stuff on Twitter yesterday saying, oh, well, it, it has to be played earlier in the year. You can't play test cricket that deep into January. January because the pitches are too hard in Queensland. I'm like, excuse me, I was at one of the great test yeah. matches. I was at one of the all-time great test matches in Brisbane in January this year. That is just bullshit. Yeah, they might have mm-hmm. a preference playing earlier, but again, it comes back to this word, agility. We've seen agility and we've shown uh, uh, players and administrators and even people in our industry, Jeff, willing to be incredibly nimble and put themselves through any number of hoops in the last couple of years. This is an easy win. Monica is absolutely ready for this in terms of being a, a an Ashes venue, they could announce this now and every day would be sold out there, no questions asked. And the and the attendance there would be, you know, less than Brisbane, but not to the extent to which it would 
you know, move the goalposts that far. And then Brisbane still gets a test match. Perth misses out because the game can't be held hostage to what the WA government's doing. We said this the other week. The Ashes series and the players' welfare, Australian players too, I stress. Not just about, I saw some Twitter backlash yesterday saying, oh, these pathetic Englishmen again. I'm like, no, this is fucking ridiculous. It's about the players writ large don't need to do this and they are being forced to do it for spurious reasons and there is a solution. And to be honest, it's not too late. Notwithstanding what mm. Ben Horn's written today, they can change on this. They can flip on this. There, there is plenty of time to get this right. But I, I wonder how much it's also to do with um, influences like Langer and Payne saying that they're prepared to do that in order to have England uncomfortable. They'd know that England would rather not be playing the first test in Brisbane. There's all that history. There's all of that, the, the sort of half-nonsense mythology as we saw. Yep last year but you know I'm sure England would rather be playing in Canberra for the first test on a flatty at, at Monica than than playing in Brisbane you know where they've got had such little success um, so there may be an element of that as well that it's worth for the for the for the players or at least for the leaders uh, playing that it's worth the discomfort and the extra oh, yeah. messing around just to get what they want uh, uh, look I, I don't doubt it for a moment and that's just ridiculous but you know such is the world we live in, uh, that winning... You know, I remember a couple of years ago with the culture review, the, the winning at all costs attitude would be, you know, mm-hmm. replaced. Uh, you know, it, it is as it always is and always will be. Jeff, we have a new national selector. Well, I say we. Australia has a new national selector. Mm-hmm. In Tony Dottomade, he won a competitive process. He was interviewed with a number of other candidates. That was uh, made public yesterday. Feels like a pretty bloody good decision to me. Uh, Tony Dottomate, who's been an exceptional administrator at Lords, of course, at the WACA, uh, Cricket Victoria. He's been able to get any number of things built when he was CEO uh, at various organisations. Uh, he's, he's a popular guy. He's a big thinker. Um, he'll be working underneath George Bailey and alongside Justin Langer as the other national selector. And, I mean, yeah, that's, that seems to me like they've, they've nailed that one. I wonder, um, it's, a, it's a curious thing to come in as a selector couple of months before the ashes starts. I mean, that's a, that's a baptism of fire. But maybe it's also strategically masterful in that they can't sack you that quickly. You know, normally if you're a selector and Australia lose the ashes, <laughs> you're out of a job. But if, you've, if those are your first five test matches in charge, they can't necessarily get rid of you that time around. Even George Bailey's a bit too recent. It'd be hard on George Bailey if he was selector for five Ashes tests and got the chop just like he did when he was a player. You know, <laughs> five, five and done. Thanks, see you later. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, I suppose mean, they'll, be, they'll be turning over one selector anyway because Langer won't get renewed. So mm-hmm. I suppose they'll have whoever the new coach is becomes a selector. So, and Dottomade will be quarantined from presumably any, any as you say, it'd be stiff to come in and get, get punted. So they're going to have some rejuvenation on that committee or that, that three-person uh, selection panel uh, in the next few months anyway. Yeah, it's, it's interesting though. I don't know. It's interesting with that. The thing of a selection panel where they go, it has to be a former test player, but it can be a you know relatively fringe former test player. The sort of the the, the Trevor Hones decades, the Andrew Hilditch years, the, these kinds of things where the the star players don't usually make great selectors. Put it that way. I, I actually quite like that. And you're right. It is that, isn't it? it, it it's those who've had some test experience, some test success. Dottomate was a very good bowler for Australia and all rounder. Hmm. Of course, that uh, took a five for a matter of fifty on on test against New Zealand all those years ago. But because he had that career where he was in and out of the team, he, he talked on, on Jared Waitley's show today about uh, about how he kind of experienced both sides of it when he was picked when maybe he shouldn't have been. 
and when mm-hmm. he was uh, left out of sides when he was in red hot form. So I think that you need to have experienced the the ups and downs as a player. Well, maybe you don't need to have, but it, it can help in being empathetic and understanding. And the other comment he made is he's never forgotten what it's like to be a cricketer. All his years in administration, he always still retains that sense of he is a cricketer first. So mm-hmm. yeah, I like it. I mean, all my dealings with Dotamade over the years have been really positive, and uh, I think that you know he's exactly the sort of personality you want in a role like that. And if you put that together with George Bailey, who, you know, few players for Australia have been screwed around so comprehensively as, as George Bailey, that sort of thing where he was part-time ODI captain when Michael Clark didn't feel like playing, which meant that it was pretty much his team for about three years, but not when anything important was happening. Yes. You know, as soon as the World Cup's on, you're on the bench champion, you know, <laughs> run the drinks. He he would have a better idea than most about how to communicate well as a selector and how to not communicate well as a selector. Uh, speaking of selection, uh, it's unclear whether Will Pekofsky will be available to play at Brisbane, as it's currently mm. scheduled, on the basis of the concussion he uh, he uh, was was felled with last week, his 10th concussion. It's a difficult topic to discuss. Uh, we both have an enormous amount of time for Will. Uh, as I've said before on the show, I did his first proper sit-down interview when he was 18 years old. He's such an impressive kid. He's not a kid anymore. He's 23 now, but... 10 concussions. It happened last year in the game you were covering, Jeff, at Dremoyne when he was on the cusp of playing against India. Missed three of the four test matches there. Had the shoulder reconstruction. This was yet another training incident. You know, I've heard, I've heard and read some slightly irrational criticism saying, well, why does he keep getting in the way of the ball? Like, what's it about his technique? Mm. How about lots of players get hit routinely? It's just that he's got so much existing, I'm going to articulate this poorly, but so much damage to his cranium that it means that he's more susceptible to to picking up these concussions where other players might not or something like that. Mm. We heard Tim Payne saying he was was gutted and and, and felt for the guy and it felt in those comments on Friday like Pukowski might be out for the season. Victoria uh, came out with a slightly different message saying he'll be available uh, by the end of the month. So there is still time, but I think there's a bigger picture here now. Well, it it does bring you to that question, doesn't it? Like, if I think it's it's probably as you say, in that it's it's very easy to look at a little bit of a section of data and then make conclusions from that without having the full picture. So you, you can say, okay, he's had right, he's had ten concussions. Ten of them haven't been from cricket. Three of them, at least, were from other th- from football and getting hit by the door and and all the rest of it. And a, and a couple have been fielding. So, you know, maybe five of them have been batting and he, when he's been hit while batting in the nets or, or in a match. As you say, there are a lot of players who get hit, but they don't, the, you know, they, they shrug it off and continue. The physio comes out or the doctor comes out, does the concussion test, thumbs up and on they go. Whereas if he gets hit like that, he's... It, it triggers his existing, his, his his previous concussions have that lasting effect. So maybe that is what's going on, whereas he can't afford to be hit even in the, the less, what would be less problematic for somebody else is, is a massive problem for him. And so if that is the case, that eventually, I mean, that draws me to the same conclusion as if he has a technical problem that means he keeps getting hit. He can't really keep playing cricket, can he? If if that's always going to be the case, if being hit in a way that would be innocuous for someone else is going to be damaging for him, how does he keep playing a game in which being hit is always going to be part of it? Yeah, it, look, it's, it's a desperately difficult conversation. My instinct would be to see this is impossible, right, because you don't want the kid 
again, I'm calling him the kid, he's not a kid, you don't want the young man to have lasting damage, but you don't want to deny him the chance to fulfil his potential as an international cricketer and what a talent he is. We've seen that through his extraordinary record for Victoria so far. Even that mm. test debut at Sydney last year, he looked so assured that half-century uh, absolutely looked, looked apart immediately as an Australian cricketer. So exciting. I wonder whether they might start looking at the data around opening batsmen Opening batters, rather. Mm. Uh, I should be using batters rather than batsmen now wherever I can. Uh, pick myself up when I can. A- against middle-order players. And sort of say, well, look, probability of being hit as an opener is so much greater than coming in at four or five. Mm. And whether... Uh, again, this is... This is uh, it's called psychology. I think it is. I think... I, I've read some... It is. Like, there, there, there is a measurable about mm. hits to the helmet and opening the batting versus coming in at number five or whatever it is. Whether they... Right. Whether they there's no good answer, right? The best worst answer mm. might be that that he becomes a middle order player when the balance of probability is he's coming in with a softer ball and thus less likely mm. to be threatening his helmet. I don't know. It, again, there's no there's no yeah. good answer. I just hope that this was a glancing blow. Of course, it wasn't televised. It was a net session. You mentioned you ran through the. I mean, he's so unlucky. Remember when the ball ricocheted out of the nets and hit him? Uh, there was the mm. one when he was fielding on Shield debut, got hit at mid on. Um, there was the door. There was the sling tackle in football. I mean, you know, there's a couple of ones where he's ducked into it. Dremoyne last year and in the Shield game against mm. New South Wales, uh, probably two or three seasons ago. But on balance, and you throw in there the fact that he's had a couple of stints away from the game to tend to his mental health. It's been a rough ride so far, and yeah. Yeah, all I can really leave this conversation with is saying all the best to Will and, and hopefully he does get an opportunity this summer and it was a yeah. minor concussion and the, the reports from Victoria this week are, 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 what, are what's borne out in what he's able to do in the months ahead. I hope so but I, I don't, I'm not optimistic that that's going to be the case. I think this this problem is so so well set in that there's no way it's just going to vanish and and I I mean I would have thought as a middle order player you're probably more likely to get short balls because the ball's not doing anything and the new ball bowlers are more likely to pitch it up and and then you know go to the middle of the pitch when when it is softer and older and and that's how they try to get wickets out during the the sort of middle of the 80 overs in Australia, but um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's just like it's it's just that they track this data now, so they know mm. who is. But anyway, it, it, we're we're sort of yep. in uncharted territory with Pekoski in any case. Uh, Jeff, we have a new segment. All you've written here yes. is burning questions. Uh, over to you. <laughs> Yes. Well, the segment, you know, it'll be an occasional segment, but occasionally we get a piece of correspondence where I think this is a real burning question. You know, uh, this is something, this is interesting. I want to get into this on the show. And so this comes in from ED, uh, all caps, who's been a nerd pledger before, who's a neutral observer who listens to the final word from Kentucky and is involved in the the manufacture of bourbon over there, as, as is my understanding. And so this isn't, you know, because we're in sort of partisan crazy ashes territory at the moment, I thought this was an interesting uh, observation from someone outside it, from someone watching from a third-party country. And this is the question. What is the basis for the hatred everyone seems to have for Tim Payne? And I'll assume this means everyone in in the UK. (laughs) ED says, going back to news reports and Twitter, it appears to have started with the 17 ashes and gone downhill from there. From then... 
where it was he's not good enough, to 18-19, he's a placeholder, to now he's only in the team because he's captain. I watched most of the Australia-India series last winter and the early Ashes jingoism from Vaughan and co was ridiculous, particularly for a series their team wasn't in. Now, Jimmy Anderson is leading Tim Payne as a wanker chance at his live shows in Manchester. For months, the ECB has been publicly preemptive in these are our demands or we're not coming, according to The Guardian, says ED, seemingly twice a week since May. It seems disingenuous to be complaining about a very mild pushback from the opposing captain. So as an outsider, is this merely Ashes Year animosity? Is it a generic hatred of sporting Australians? Or is it an international ad hominem reaching a mean girl level for reasons I cannot fathom? Yeah, okay. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks, ED. Uh, That is an interesting email, an interesting topic. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms before. I suppose I get a bit of the England side living over here and I hear it a bit more. Mm. Their position would be that Tim has led this post-sandpaper team where it's we're going to be better people. You know, we, we are more mindful of the of the responsibilities mm-hmm. we have as test cricketers and him sort of ushering in this new generation of Australian cricketer whilst at the same time giving a fair bit of evidence that he's just the same as everyone else who's ever played for Australia as well. So they think there's an inherent hypocrisy within pain. So I think that that whole, you know, he's not good enough or placeholder or whatever else, that's part of it maybe peripherally, but it's mostly they, they don't much fancy the alleged hypocrisy of pain, whether that's the, you know, get into the Gabba stuff with Ashwin. But that was a bit more than that, wasn't it? It was the quite cutting, personal, snide stuff that Payne mm. apologised for the next day, by the way. So he knew he'd done wrong and, and backed over. I don't imagine some of his predecessors would have been apologetic uh, the morning after the night before, so to speak. No. So, yeah, I think that uh, Payne, on that basis, it cops a bit of a rough whack because he has tended to at least acknowledge where he has overstepped, dare I say, the line. However, I also I, 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 I do see where they're coming from when they, they interpret his comments the other week. Remember that 140,000 people have died uh, because of COVID in the UK. And when, when, when it could have been interpreted as pain being quite flippant around COVID and the England team and kind of, you know, suck it mm. up, princess. You know, I put it in my column in Wisdom. It was akin to, you know, meet you at the Gabba on the 8th of December for an ass-kicking. That they would be, <laughs> well, hang on, mate. Like, it's not quite as straightforward as that. We've played 18 test matches through COVID. You've played four. We've travelled around the world. You've done none of that. You know, we've done it tough at home. Australia have had lockdowns, but they haven't experienced anything like uh, the, the sort of grief, I suppose, that, um, that, uh, that Brits have. So... That would be, I think, the perspective of many English cricket fans as a starting point on the conversation. Mm. Yeah, I I think that's right in covering some of it in that it is the fact that when, you know, when Payne was initially coming out and saying we're going to be better and different, there was a lot of um, cynicism about that, particularly from England, saying, you know, we'll believe it when we see it. And so anything that's been contrary to that um, the Ashwin blow-up's the most obvious one because when you're on TV and you're a wicketkeeper, everything you're saying is getting piped mm. into the microphones and it's not like there was a report that he said something on the field. It's like everybody can hear two and a half minutes of this sort of chuntering going on while they're watching the game live and so it makes it makes someone look stupid. But in terms of there is a pettiness and a kind of viciousness to it from some quarters which I reckon is a lot to do with resenting being like having to treat someone like Tim Payne with the uh, like like having that person having the prominence of being Australian captain without having the sort of player record that 
an England cricket fan would expect them to have. Like an England fan is used to Australia being captained by Ricky Ponting or Steve Waugh or, you know, someone with an imposing record, someone Mm. who you can hate but you have to respect Mm. their ability to some extent. And so then it's really easy to shit on a guy who's got a modest record because, you know, he's a wicketkeeper. He's... There, there have been some great batting wicketkeepers, but not that many. If you look back through the history, there aren't a lot of wicketkeepers who make a lot of test hundreds. There have been, you know, there might have been 15 or, or 20 for the various teams across the years, but for the most part, that's not how it works. And so it's a lot easier to get stuck into a player like that because you can go, oh, look, he's never made a test hundred. Oh, look, he's, you know, he averages 30 with the bat. Yeah, well, guess what? So does every wicketkeeper, um, aside from a few freaks through the history of the game. That's... That's what they do. That's what their job is. So I feel like it's it's partly a, a resentment at being at being chipped at, like that there is a little bit of chippiness uh, at, by someone who they don't think is good enough to be telling them that. Like the, how shitty they were when Tim Payne at Edgebaston said, we don't care about Edgebaston, and then Australia went out and won there. They were fur- – like the, the local press response to that was not happy at all and it was really based on who does he think he is – He's not. He's Ricky Ponting might have been allowed to say that, but not this guy. Who the hell is he? He's a clubby. He doesn't count. He's not at test level. Blah blah blah. Yeah, and and, and the other point here is that Payne actually had a pretty good series against India, if I recall correctly. He was player of the match at Adelaide, I reckon, Jeff. Yep. With his eighty odd not out, um, which gave Australia the the modest first innings lead, which was enough to to, to win comfortably. He made a half century at. Brisbane batting with Marnus, if I recall correctly. So the point here is that he isn't sort of going to be dropped or anything like that. He is mm-hmm. stabilised where he is in the team. Didn't have a great 19 Ashes, but the last couple of years his batting has got him to a certain point. And Dan Bredig often writes about this uh, when trying to provide context to Payne's career with the bat. He's done a lot of this, um, the majority of it, as an international cricketer with a shattered finger. Takes a lot of bravery uh, to do what he does with his finger in the state that it's in and to change the way he plays as well. So there's that extra context with Payne and his batting. And, yeah, I, I reckon where you've landed on there is about right, that they're like, why can this bloke tell us anything? You know, And mm. the fact that Payne is an enthusiastic member of the pre-Ashes Bants community probably doesn't help the situation. <laughs> you know, I, I yeah. spoke about this, I think, maybe a couple of weeks ago and wrote about it in, in my Wisdom Cricket Monthly piece uh, this month about just how nauseating and cringeworthy and sort of uh, infuriating the whole thing is. And the fact that Payne's played a role in that Maybe he feels like he must as Australian captain. Maybe it's kind of like what Nathan Mm. Lyons said back in 2017 when he made those quite ridiculous comments about hoping he would end careers. I mean, who thinks that, let alone says it? Mm. That's not in keeping with the Nathan Lyon I know. And he said later he was trying to take pressure off the guys coming into the team unexpectedly, coincidentally Tim Payne, who were wearing Mm. plenty of heat that day after Chris Barrett broke that story. Uh, And Nathan Lyon goes out the next morning and, and changes the narrative, I suppose you would say. So there's like everybody feels like they have an expectation ahead of an Ashes series to behave in in a certain way. And it's just, yeah, it's just embarrassing. And the fact that Payne might feel as though he has a responsibility to play in that this time around, and he did in 2019, it just kind of adds to it. So, yeah, there's a broader, much wider proliferation of people not being their best selves ahead of these these kinds of series. Yep. And then it does delve into that mean girl side of things when it's like, you know, if it were a good player saying these things to us, then, you know, we we wouldn't attack them on the basis of them not being a good player. Well, but, the Barmy Army stuff, uh, right? But, the Barmy the bar Army yeah. stuff with Payne the other week. And, you know, and others mm. piling in and Payne responding and, you know, 
It, yeah. Again, it all, it all feeds that, that phony war, and Bormy wrote a nice piece about this on the weekend in The Age too. You know, that wouldn't be happening if it were Ricky Ponting, obviously. Mm. Mm. Obviously. Yep. Anyway, I think that, re- that, I think that dealt with the question reasonably well. Yeah, we should do it more I think often. So. Burning questions. How do they get them in, Jeff? Well, that one came in via the patron DMs. Okay. Um, so that's a good way if you want to join up there. Um, otherwise, you can find us on, I don't know, 50 other social media platforms where, <laughs> where we I, live I, apparently. Well, I jumped on the Discord, I should say, as um, we, we, uh, we move into to Nerd Pledge and uh, talk a bit about Brick Lane uh, briefly before we uh, move, move the conversation to domestic cricket. I jumped on Discord for the first time in a couple of weeks yesterday. Obviously, I was away overseas and then quite busy uh, in the couple of weeks leading up to it and just needed to focus on work and, and then focus on chasing a baby around a pool. That Discord page is kicking off. There are people mm-hmm. everywhere. The conversation's unbelievable. So maybe if you want to submit a burning question and you're a patron, and you can do so on Discord. And if you're not yet a, a patron, that Discord page uh, or that Discord channel uh, might be part of an incentive to get involved because uh, people who love the game, I already see that there are a lot of people who are planning their meetups for the Ashes. We had meetups during the England-India series. You know, lots of people, even at um, the Rachel Hayhoe Flint uh, trophy final at North Hans a few weeks ago, a game I was um, on comms for. We had some members of the final word community catching up for a drink there too. So, yeah, that, that's where it's at at the moment. And that might be a nice gentle mm-hmm. segue into, Jeff, a little segment of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge. It's the game of nerds, the game of pledges, the game we play with the people on our Patreon page. Here's the deal. Two shows a week. They need to get funded and people help us fund them. Bless their hearts. And they send us contributions that are not normal round amounts of currency. They're very specific amounts, specific numbers that relate to cricket in some way. For instance, this week, the Reverend... Dylan Nichols from the Mighty Quokkas Cricket Club in Melbourne has sent through $4.35, which means 435 is our Nerd Pledge number and we have to figure out the significance of 435. Yes, 435 from the Reverend. Uh, the clue, it applies to a follower of Moses. He fell into a river. He rose to miss a milky vessel. He fell too short in later capturing the vessel. This is a mm. this, this is a good one, Jeff. Now this was this was sent in in poetry form. It was sent in you know each each snippet on an individual line. It was a stanza of thought of sorts, and it came in a couple of months ago. And I read the clue, and I was like, "What the hell is he on about? <laughs> like, what?" I was like, "How am I supposed to figure this out? This is absurd." And I had it in the spreadsheet and I, I looked at it a couple of times over the last couple of months when I was adding things to the spreadsheet and it's still like no idea. And then just this week when I came to pop it in our notes for the show, I thought, hang on a minute, milky vessel, pure cup. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's about someone who won the pure cup. And then it all started to fall into place. Jonathan Moss uh, was, still is, a, a Jewish cricketer a follower of Moses, so much so that he went to represent Australia in Israel at the Maccabea Games in 1997 when he was a young lad. And he was walking across a pedestrian bridge over a river in Tel Aviv that collapsed and threw him into the Yankon River. So thus, a follower of Moses who fell into a river. He rose to miss a milky vessel because he debuted for Victoria in 2000-2001. They made the finals. He got out for a duck and they lost the final in that season. But 
in 2003. He was playing as well when the Vicks made 710 and won the Milky Vessel, the Pura Cup, for the first time. He made 98. As per the clue, he fell too short. He made 98, which took him beyond 900 runs for the season, along with 19 wickets. He was an all-rounder, seam bowling all-rounder, who did some great work for Victoria in the middle order over a number of years. Yeah, and his career corresponds with, I suppose, my peak Sheffield Shield fandom. Uh, so I, I remember being so invested in that 2000-2001 Shield final that I took a day off school to watch the first day uh, when Victoria was skittled for, for not many. They, they made a, a great comeback in that match, actually, with the ball. And there was the uh, the Klinger-Stuart Law affair where did the catch carry, did it not, and all the rest of it. But that was their that was their second Shield final in a row and Queensland uh, won both of them. Um, but yeah, he in that 03 04 that was that was their first win since 1990-91. I remember it was the the year when the uh, it would have been the year the Olympic stand was out of commission when it was being rebuilt. So everybody was gathered in the southern stand and they were giving out milk by the gallon. And I was in my early second year of university and I went along and I drank a shitload of milk. I, I drank so much milk across those four days, <laughs> liters of the stuff. They were just giving out cartons of milk. It was fucking brilliant. So I watched, um, yeah, Matty Elliott go on and make. I reckon Matty Elliott made about 190 odd, and then there were a slew of players out between 80 and 100, uh, including John Moss, who made 98. I think batting at number six, if I recall correctly. My shame that week. I don't know if I've told Stewie this. I will at some stage. Was because um, of course he's coach of Middlesex these days, and I deal with him quite a lot. But back then he was the villain. You know, two years mm-hmm. in a row, controversial decisions at the Gabba. And when he was dismissed, he was walking back towards the southern stand where the dressing rooms were that year because they didn't have the dressing rooms on, on the northern side of the ground at their disposal because of the redevelopment. And I walked all the way down the aisle from where I was sitting to give him a spray from the fence as he was walking off about being a cheat and so forth. <laughs> I reckon that, that milk might have been complimented by a few beers at the time. And um, I remember walking past Nick Holland, who was the, the Hawthorne centre-half forward at the time, and him looking at me like... Like, what the fuck's this bloke up to? What's going on with him? And not unreasonably, not unreasonably mm-hmm. that the, the Dutchie would have um, thought this is an odd thing to see a guy this fired up at a Shield game. But as I say, I was pretty <laughs> pretty invested in, in Shield cricket at the time as a fan. <laughs> Back to John Moss. Like, yeah, he kind of came through the Sydney system, didn't have a contract and came to Victoria like maybe – 25, 26 years of age. So by the time mm. he you know, started making an impact, initially in the white ball stuff and then in the four-day team, he, he was kind of on numbers, probably quite close to national selection, but they thought of him as a, a little bit too old. He might have got a chance of playing for Australia had Victoria cleared him. I remember he wanted to go home at one point to Sydney and the Vic said, no, you're contracted, you're not going back to Sydney. Uh, and like I suppose that was the era when playing for New South Wales gave you a, a much better chance of playing for Australia. But he did serve Victoria with distinction over about seven seasons. He was a fill-in captain occasionally. He was vice-captain for a couple of seasons. Mm. He finished with seven first-class centuries. Uh, He made over 4,500 runs, took over 140 wickets at 34, played over 100 one-day games, won a couple of trophies there too. Uh, he was an excellent speaker on the game too, on the early days of SEN. He used to do a lot of work on there. And, uh, yeah, someone I remember fondly as Victoria's all-rounder in, in a great era to follow the game, Jonathan Moss. Mm. A, a friend of mine who played first grade in Sydney used John Moss to me as the example between of the gulfs between levels from you know say from state to international from first grade to state he said Jonathan Moss would monster everybody in first grade cricket he's like he would take a five for and make a hundred 
in the same game every week, like just every week, um, and then go to state cricket and, you know, have a good record but really had to scrap for, for his wickets and, and for his runs. An interesting thing is that he never took a five-wicket haul in his first-class career. Right. He took a, quite, a lot of, quite a lot of four-wicket hauls. But that's why uh, the reverence number is 435 because, uh, well, initially I thought it might be to do with Victoria's famous 455 chase when David Hussey made a double hundred in the fourth innings, John Moss, made 76 and put on a big partnership with Hussey, the, f- the first big partnership, and they beat the previous Victorian record chase, which was 435. But the more simple reason that 435 is the Revs number is because those were John Moss's best first-class bowling figures, four for 35 at the Wacker when he got Damian Martin, Ryan Campbell, Steve McGoffin and Brad Williams. What a quartet, dream dinner party right there. Um, and, and those were his best figures because he never quite got to the five-wicket hall. And, of course, because it's the weekly show, uh, there's only one person who's in the running uh, to win the Brick Lane Brewing slab, and that is the Reverend Dylan Nichols. So you have the opportunity to on-send a slab of Brick Lane of your choice, uh, which many people, Jeff, have been engaging with over the last couple of weeks when we had our Glenn Maxwell uh, discount offer. That's now ended, but uh, plenty of opportunities to, to get involved with Brick Lane through the summer. What I can tell you is there will be more discount codes coming up. Uh, it was not a one-time thing. There will be more in the future, so keep an eye out because, yeah, lots of people took advantage of some cut price ales. But this one, this slab goes out for free to the Rev. Uh, he can send it to whoever he wants who's in Australia. This person has to be in Australia. He can send it to himself. He can send it to someone else. Uh, the important thing that Brick Lane want you to know this week is that the One Love Pale Ale one the best pale ale in Australia at the International Beer Awards not that long ago. I mean, that tells you pretty much all you need to know. It's one love, right? It's all about getting together. It's all about community. <laughs> it's all about the end of lockdown. It's all about going outside and getting in a large pile of up to 15 people from this Friday in Melbourne or, you know, a week or so after that, it could be a pile of up to 100 people. I think you still have to wear masks in the pile, but... <laughs> Get in the pile with a bunch of One Love Pale Ale. That's all I'm saying. You can get in the hog pile with Andrew Simons and Marnus Labashane, as as, uh, mm-hmm. as Simo was caught on, on the hot mic talking about earlier this year. I completely agree. BrickLaneBrewing.com is where you go to learn more about them. Their social media handles are in our show notes. Take a photo of yourself enjoying the end of lockdown in Melbourne or in New South Wales or in any other part of Australia, but specifically those cities where... I mean, Jeff, you must be looking forward to, to getting out this weekend. You've been... You've been locked in your apartment for the better part of four months, barely leaving. It's not as though you do exercise, so you've barely left the joint. Have you planned your first <laughs> night on the tiles? Uh, well, you can't actually really go anywhere because everything's booked because <laughs> uh, the, the, the pubs have a 50-person capacity. Everything's out, you know, It's outdoors only at this point. But you are allowed to have people over to your house. So you can have a 10-person house party. You know, that's enough. Plus the, the, I think 10 people enough. house parties are the perfect number for a house party. I mean, you don't want three or yeah. four. People get people get jiggy with it with ten people there. People are, yeah. are are willing to play a few shots. They're not willing to play a few shots when there are four people there. But no. ten people constitutes a sing along. It constitutes a small yeah. dance floor in the living room. You'll you'll yeah. have plenty of fun. 
Yeah, ten. You've got you've there. There are enough people to keep the dance floor going if three or four people go to get drinks. That's you know you, you can maintain critical mass Quorum. in both kitch, kitchen and <laughs> and living room. That's the key part. Bricklanebrewing.com, fantastic supporters of the final world. Well done to the Reverend for winning this week's slab. You can do likewise. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Join up with what we're doing uh, on the Patreon page and you can be, a, I suppose, a two-in-seven chance uh, of being a mm. winner. We pull one out of the hat on the weekend and one out of the hat on our weekly show. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. A good cricket bat. No better feeling than holding a good cricket bat, unless maybe that feeling was holding a cricket bat that was awarded the prize for being the best cricket bat in the world. <laughs> Uh, or or the second best cricket bat in the world, which two cricket bats were that were made by Woodstock Cricket. Woodstock, you thought it was a music festival. You thought it was a cartoon bird. You thought it was a 440 <laughs> milliliter can of premix bourbon and coke. It is not. It is a cricket bat company that make beautiful handmade bats and then match them with you. You come in, you talk to them or you get on Zoom and you chat to them and you tell them what you want and they match it up with you. It's like the television show Perfect Match with Dexter the Love Robot but matching you with the cricket bat of your dreams at Woodstock. Yeah, that, that's right. So they've got an acclaimed bat maker there who gets down on the phone with you, or Jono does as well, he runs the show at Woodstock, and they make sure you've got the right bat if it's being done by Zoom, or you go into the into the showroom just outside of Nottingham if you're in the UK and you can go through the same uh, deliberative process uh, and work out what bat picks up right and they can make tweaks to it as they go. And if you're in Australia, I mean, it's the 19th of October as we're recording this, the recreational season will be starting very soon. It already has in, in some parts of Australia, but for those who have been locked down, it'll start in the weeks to come. Treat yourself. If you buy it now and you have a bat for the second half of the season after Christmas, I mean, this is the time to get stuck in. And if you're in England, uh, you know, it's the end of the year. Um, you can jump on and punch in TFW20 at woodstockcricket.co.uk. Get yourself 20% off uh, some of these gorgeous Woodstock bats. And you can look at it all the way through pre season training. You might be doing a winter net at the Oval. On, on the you on the sand it you can sand it you I can mean, oil it I, I mean I wouldn't advise sanding a new bat but you could you could if you want to feel more intimately engaged with the bat before you use it for the first time and you mm-hmm. might be doing a winter net at a place like the Oval where everybody looks like Joe Angel the bounce that you get uh, when bowling in those nets you'd want to have a good blade for winter nets. That's my advice to you if you're a club cricketer in the UK and and what better place? Woodstockcricket.co.uk, affordable, outstanding cricket bats that we love uh, to support here on The Final Word. All that information in the show notes and a 20% discount by punching in at the payment bar, TFW20. G'day guys, this is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Right, Jeff, domestic cricket, the Sheffield Shield and the uh, One Day Cup. I'm not sure what the One Day Cup's called uh, these days, but let's actually start with the white ball stuff uh, where Travis Head made another uh, 50-over double ton at Karen Rolton Oval, uh, which is uh, getting a reputation as a bit of a freeway there. They made, they being South Australia, 391 for eight against Queensland. Head got 230 from 127 balls. Um, That's his second double ton. Uh, He averages 63 since his last one day international. It's kind of strange how he fell out of calculations there. There was that season maybe five years ago when he was opening, making runs, occasionally batting down the order, played in the 2017 Champions Trophy and looked quite good. I think there's still a chance he'll be a better white ball player for Australia than a red ball player. Probably right. I mean, he's... His inclination to go hard outside off stump 
is much more suited to the white ball game, especially as a left-hander to, you know, I always come back to seeing a player get caught at deep third twice in the same test match, which I've never seen before, but Travis Head did it. Um, you want you want to be playing a format where there's no catching cordon if, if that's the way you go about your game. So, yeah, maybe he will be back. Disappointing that they lost a couple of overs to Rain because if he'd had the full 50 overs, he might have given Ali Brown a shake. 268 is the all-time list A record. He was on 230 and hold out going for a six with about three overs to go. So, you know, if he'd had, I think he had 21 balls left in the innings or would have if it were a 50 over innings nice. at that point to get 39 runs. Could have done it. Wouldn't have bet against him at that point. I didn't realise um, it was that element that rained whilst he was still in. It rained earlier in the inning, so it oh, meant they got right. two two overs trimmed off the end. So he got out swinging big with you know what was uh, whatever it was three three balls to go rather than twenty one balls to go or whatever it was. Yeah, still seven hundred runs in the game despite it being uh, despite it being rain reduced with Queensland getting three twelve. Sam Hazlitt, uh, ninety three from fifty nine. He was backed early on. Jeff, as we remember, you were covering that game in, in Auckland, how mm. long ago it was now, but they ID'd him early on the pathway as a player who could play a lot of cricket for Australia, and he's actually had a couple of good seasons now, so he won't be that far away from consideration again. Classic, the classic Greg Chappell pick that was. the um, yeah, yeah, he's never played a List A game, but let's, let's pop him in for an ODI, have a look at him. I had a dream about him last night, and he was middling them, so in he goes. Um, yes, look, I... I, th- I feel like there's there's very little you can read into these early Shield games, uh, particularly the stuff that's happening in Adelaide on those wickets where everybody's making runs. Although I will note that, and you'll back me up that I've been saying this for two seasons, this would be the third season now, Jimmy Pearson is the next wicketkeeper. No one ever talks about it, but... People are, are just starting to talk. They're yeah. just starting to now, I think but they've only just to come it. to it. Yeah, I reckon, you, I reckon you've played a role in this. You know how sometimes, I mean, I'm not saying you've campaigned for them or anything, but there are players where, you know, you hear it more and more, to use the, mm. the meme. Uh, <laughs> I think he, you've been part of that hearing him more and more. So in that game, the Shield game, Queensland, we're all at 1-5-2 in the first innings at Adelaide Oval. Uh, Burns made 48. Dan Worrell playing his last season for South Australia because he's, he's formally moving to the UK, not only to play for Surrey, but to try and become an England test cricketer. He took four for 49. And Doggett, who was there and thereabouts last year, wasn't he, in Australian calculations. So he took three for 25. Uh, then South Australia made 280. Harry Nielsen, 71. Travis Head, half century. Mark Steckity, seven for 44. He ends up taking 10 for 92 for the match. He was in that squad that didn't go to mm. South Africa. There was um, there was Fekety who never went to Bangladesh and never got a game. And now there's Steckety who, who didn't mm. go to South Africa. Let's hope he doesn't suffer a similar fate. But yes, uh, a good time to be taking bulk wickets for him. Then Queensland, the second time around, this is probably the most important uh, contribution of the match, made 451 for seven. So they, they arrested that slide there. Kawaja... 174, Pearson 132. But we referred earlier, Jeff, to Will Pekofsky's uh, plight at the moment. If he's not available for Brisbane, and let's assume he's not, then I think they're getting closer and closer to recalling Kawaja. He averaged 59 last year, albeit I think he had the 17th most runs in the competition, but somehow he still averaged 59 and made a couple of centuries. And yes, 174 at this time of year, he would just about, I reckon, be in pole position if Pekofsky's not fit. Mm. He's, I mean, they know who he is and they know what he can do. And I don't think he was supposed to be 
banished forever when they dropped him in 2019 during the Ashes. I mean, he got a rough deal to be out of the one-day team, frankly, at that point. He basically got mm. dropped from one-dayers because he'd been dropped from test matches. But it wasn't supposed to be a, you know, you're hopeless. It was just a, we need to make room. Marnus has done enough that he has to stay in and um, Usman was the one who, whose returns allowed him to be squeezed out. But it was a squeezing out, not a, a banishment. So there's always been the opportunity for him to come back and he's done his politics quite well with with Langer <laughs> so he, he should be a, a decent shout of coming back in yeah maybe not with his teammates after he said they stabbed him in the back but you know we'll see how that goes Pearson you mentioned already uh, made 132 that's his second hundred uh, in quick yep. succession and then South Australia batted out the draw uh, when looking at Pearson you have to acknowledge that Carey made an unbeaten 66 batting for about four hours so he did the job there for the Sackers on the final day alongside Jake Carter who made runs in the first round and a 79 here. Steckity adding three more wickets for his uh, yeah, aforementioned tenfer for the match. But Kerry, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Kerry plays at some stage through the season uh, for Australia. In Well, I say the season, the Ashes series. I reckon if there was an injury in the top five or top six, they might look at Kerry, given that it feels as though when Payne retires, he's the most likely to take the gloves and they'll want to give him some experience. So a bit of a watch this space there on a, on a player with plenty of experience now. Well, they still don't really have a number five for that. Test team, you know there are there are there are spots in the middle order that are up for grabs. There might even be a spot at the top of the order if um, if Dave Warner has a bad T Twenty World Cup. Perversely, if he if he looks like he's off colour there, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if he comes under pressure before the Ashes starts. But uh, who do you think bats five? Who do you think bats five? Before we just move on from this ever so okay. quickly, who do you think is going to bat five in the first Test? Bearing in mind that Victoria and New South Wales will play games against each other, they'll be hard fought as they always are between those states Mm. so that'll inform that conversation to an extent but are we assuming that Travis Head is now the man most likely? Probably yeah I doubt they'll go back to Matthew Wade Travis Head's pole position carries a possibility if they were actually going to be interesting or or, um, you know show a bit of spine they'd give Maxwell a go but they never have before so why would they start now yeah I think with Maxi I think uh, if Maxi was on the team sheet in the first test he'd be the player that England would be most worried about but yeah it, it, it feels to me as though that but it's that... po- I think well, it's possible if he if he dominates the T20 World Cup I reckon it's possible they go with momentum that you know someone in touch regardless of the format you might as well give them a role. I, I don't think that's out of the question. Now, Tony Dottomate is the selector. We used to always joke about it, didn't we, about what states that the selectors come from. Well, he is a Victorian. Well, I don't know. Probably won't happen, but we'll, we'll back it in. Staying with men's Red Bull cricket, uh, the county championship is changing formats again for the you know the umpteenth year in a row. We're going back to 10 teams in Division 1, 8 teams in Division 2. I think they did that for one year. Previously, it was 8 and 10 the other way around. Then it was 9 and 9 before that. And of course, the, the regional systems have been junked as a result. I'm kind of pissed off about this really they got there with a plurality of votes they didn't get a majority of the county chairs to support it but they needed a I think they needed a a majority to 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 go the other way and uh, it was sufficient to go back to the status quo to back over something I said the other week I just hope this doesn't result in us having like division two counties again and I admire what Gloucestershire and Northampton have been able to achieve getting promoted from their 2019 finish so they didn't take into consideration 2020 or 2021 got to feel sorry for knots I mean they did everything right this year and they're back in division two next year on the basis of what they did two and a half years ago in 2019 how does that make any sense yeah I know how do you like I think they nobody's even playing for the same teams anymore I know I, I guess they felt an obligation to the teams that got promoted in 2019 
which is a good thing in a way because North Hats earned their promotion and Gloucestershire mm. earned their promotion to air quotes, Division 2 counties who, who got their way out of Division 2. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they go. But, yeah, there's understandable frustration there. Um, and what I would l- love to see is this being the start of a broader conversation around the second division. Like, what does it represent? Mm. Eight teams there. What do we want from that? Do we want to see teams like Leicestershire and Derbyshire, uh, who have got less money, having a genuine opportunity of playing first division cricket in the next couple of years? And if so, what policy changes will the ECB make to funding, to the salary cap, which I've been arguing for, which could enable that and have a, a greater competitive balance across the two divisions? So, uh, But, yeah, that, that's a slightly frustrating change i quite like this year when we started in april and all 18 teams can win it it felt mm. like it was a more egalitarian system but oh well not to be i suppose the the point that was made i can't remember by who but on our discord page was all 18 teams can win it next year like the you know the following year at the start of any given season all 18 teams can win the season after that you can win it you've True. just got to get promoted first True. so that's not necessarily the disqualifying um, factor, but I think yeah, ten, ten, and eight means you end up with you know the eight being very much an afterthought. It's it's the kids' table, you know. It's you you lot go and play amongst yourselves, and you know the, the grown ups will talk over here. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and it does. Yeah, it embeds that that, that imbalance. I reckon when it's eight, because it used to be the other way around: eight in first division, ten in the second division. It's easier to swallow if the eight if, if it does revolve. If, if it changes more often, if teams do have the opportunity to win it, and like maybe I'm spoiled from being brought up in in the land of Australian rules football and so on, where the equalisation measures largely work. You know, yeah. most teams have periods of success at the top and eventually end up cycling back down again. That's how it goes, rather than the sort of rich and the poor. But they're very happy in the UK with the rich and the poor. They love it in the football. It's fine. You can have, you know, hundreds of loser clubs who will never get anywhere and you can have six clubs owned by murderous oil despots who can pump their blood money into it. And that's fine. Everybody will cheer them and (laughs) and dress up in their Mohammed bin Salman outfits and, and go along to watch their team play and cheer them on. And no one gives a shit. I mean, that's that's the way that sport works in yeah. that part of the world. Yeah, and look, the richest club or in Surrey don't have that, uh, that. That's not part of their cultural makeup, but the salary cap, which which binds them, is meant to be about competitive balance, right? You don't have a salary cap mm. unless you want to achieve what you're talking about there. The mm. issue being that teams can't pay up to the salary cap because they haven't got the same wealth. So yes. anyway. Salary cap means nothing if you don't have the money to pay it. Exactly. Uh, Staying with domestic cricket, the WBBL, I mentioned off the top, we're into season seven. Jeff, remember that that first day at the Junction Mm. Oval all those years ago? I do. uh, In 2015, uh, how how that has grown up. We saw the TV figures coming out saying 1.2 million people were watching cumulatively in one of the games, something like that. Big numbers, uh, which were unheard of uh, back when this competition started. It gets better and better and bigger and bigger. Um, They were all played behind closed door. One game was played with crowds, then the rest were played behind closed doors due to Tasmania's three-day lockdown. But for the Sixers, the perfect start, two wins. The Strikers, the Gades and the Scorchers were also on the winner's list. Uh, There was a big Indian influence felt throughout uh, the competition so far. There was a super over finish with Sophie Devine, the winner yet again. Hypercourse pulled these numbers together. She's played five super overs in the WBBL, faced 16 balls, hit 56 runs at a strike rate of 350 uh, and hit six sixes and had five wins and never been out. So if you want someone to be in a super over, it's one S Divine. So, yeah, a really good first weekend and lots of interest on television. Sophie. Oh, wow. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and and you would back Jess Jonathan bowling in a super over most times, but got taken down on that particular occasion. Um, Risha Gosh batting for the Hurricanes looked really good in in one innings there. I mean, God, they need it, the Hurricanes. They've been such an abject team for so long. They've hung on to Rachel Priest and she came out and did a T20, well, not not a format wide, but a WBBL asterisk Bannerman, like not a Bannerman because not everybody was out, but she scored the greatest percentage of runs in a WBBL game, about 71% (laughs) when she made a 107 out of 140-odd, just absolutely smoked them. Was on track to beat Aaron Fincher 75.1% from all T20 cricket. But uh, Naomi Stellenberg cracked a couple of boundaries right at the end to uh, to dip her back under that mark. But still, uh, they've got Molly Strano as well, the Hurricanes. So maybe the the real struggler team of the comp um, might might be up there. They've got the highest wicket taker and the highest run scorer in the comp after the first few games. Yeah, I, I hope that is the case. I mentioned the Indian contingent. There was one game where Jamima Rodrigues uh, was in the runs, uh, opening the batting for the Gades. Harman Preet Kaur made number beaten twenty four down at number four. So that's where. The the Gades overcame the Canes. Uh, the Strikers have got Talia McGrath firing as captain now. She made runs and took wickets, made 40-odd and took three for uh, against the Thunder to secure a victory there. You mentioned Risha Gosh already. Radha Yadav, who's another Indian recruit, she picked up three wickets there for the Sixers. And, of course, there's Shafali Verma, who, who made a half-century uh, over the weekend as well for the Sixers. So she made 57 in their victory over the Hurricanes. So, yeah, the Sixers have started well and have recruited well. Yes, uh, except that they've dumped Jody Hicks. Sorry to say, they thought, oh, OK, we've brought in Shafali Verma, you know, number one in the format in the world, and Radha Yadav, who holds a world record for the most uh, matches in a row, taking a wicket, which is 27 games in a row for, for India in T20 cricket without recording a none for. And, and apparently, just for that reason, they can get rid of the best specialist fielder in the competition. So Hicksy's big six seasons, um, yielding five runs, have uh, have come to an end and sadly we won't see her in the Big Bash anymore. I reckon the Scorchers are the team to beat though. Uh, you know, with Beth Mooney there now and I've mentioned already uh, Sophie Devine winning that Super Over. I, I think it's going to... I said it before, Jeff, and I'll say it again. I think it's the year of the Perth Scorchers. Mm. Uh, we, I'm sure I can't wait to be proven wrong in, in the couple yeah. of months ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry that you are wrong. Um, yeah, they have two openers um, and then they've got bugger all until their bowlers. I mean, Chloe Paparo is still going around who's scored about 400 runs in six years herself uh, and, and somehow still gets a contract. They've never fixed that issue through their through their middle order. They rely on players like Heather Graham for runs when, you know, really she should be doing more of their bowling than their batting. And, yeah, if they're big two at the top, don't fire, they won't win. Yeah, I suppose when you look at the Sixers and you see Elisa Healy whacking 57 from 27 in her first game, you're reminded of how strong they are in addition to their recruits. Elise Villani, also in the runs. Jeff, a player you've, you've tracked closely uh, from the start. She made 54 not out in the season opener for the Stars. A game they didn't win. It was um, an 11 over smash in the end, uh, thanks to Healy just teeing off. But yeah, there's that established strength of players that we've been seeing throughout those seven seasons and we'll keep a really close eye on the WBBL every week on the final word and, and uh, hopefully we'll organise a, a couple of interviews along the way too. Uh, Jeff, let's take a break on this, the weekly show of the final word. And when we return, uh, we'll be uh, joined by ESPN Quick Info, Young Gun, Matt Roller. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. 
Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Into the last segment uh, we have joining us today, uh, Young Gun from ESPN Creek Info, Matt Heavy Roller, who is in 12 hours from now taking off to cover the T20 World Cup. That's terribly exciting. Is this your first overseas tour covering England, Matt? Uh, it is, Colo. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, hugely excited to get out there um, and get my get my teeth sunk into it. I think my my first ever T20 World Cup game that I'm covering as a journalist is going to be Ireland versus Namibia in Sharjah in the heat. So uh, no finer way to get started, I think, than that. The stuff that dreams are made of. For, <laughs> you know, for when you're when you're young and starting out in the game, you think Sharjah, you think Namibia, you think Dr. Rudy Van Vuren. You know the influence he's had over the years. He's but he's back involved with the game, isn't he? Isn't he's he's administrating cricket in Namibia or something like that? Gee, talk about putting the young bloke on the spot, Jeff. You know who Rudy is. I know who Rudy is. But Matt wasn't born yeah. during the 2003 World Cup, so keep things in perspective. That's true. Yeah. Uh, what, what you what you were covering yesterday, uh, heavy, was the uh, England warm up game. Where let's just deal with that first because there's an injury uh, complaint there. Liam Livingston, who. I assume will be England's primary finisher or middle order basher at the very least. Might miss the first game. Yeah, it, it, I think he's only a minor doubt at this point. Um, we sort of England said that they were going to wait 24 hours, wait for the swelling to go down. But yeah, he, he dropped a dropped a really easy catch. Actually, uh, I think he lost it in the lights. Um, uh, they were playing on one of the warm up ovals at the uh, at Dubai, um, and yeah, lost the lost the catch in the lights. Smashed him on the little finger. Went off pretty quickly. Looked in a lot of pain. Uh, England have sort of played it down so far but um, yeah to be honest it might in a way it might not be the worst thing for them because it might save them a really tough selection decision because uh, they're going to you know Roy Butler Burstow Morgan all locked in Moeen's been in uh, really good form coming off the back of the IPL and hit quick runs again yesterday so then that basically probably leaves one spot for between Milan and Livingston um, or potentially they change the balance and drop a bowler so it could actually turn out to be one of those that um, saves them a really difficult call ahead of the first game if he's not quite fit enough but yeah obviously will be a big big miss given uh, what he did during the English summer over here. You mentioned the IPL Matt the the IPL final happened after we recorded our show last week. The the crusty old bastards who are the <laughs> Chennai Super Kings somehow creaked to another win. It's it's fascinating how they've built this team of unfashionable T20 players. You know, Faf Duplessis, who's not uh, getting picked for South Africa these days. Moen Ali, who's always being bounced around the order and treated as a sort of weird exotic species by England. Josh Hazelwood, who you know, certainly wouldn't have been the first fast bowler picked for Australia in T20 cricket, say, a year ago, but was, was so influential during that final. Uh, run us through a bit of what happened in, in the final and what influence that might have on the tournament that starts right off the back of the IPL. Well, I think the the first thing to note is um, I think a lot of people will be reassured by how uh, fast scoring the final was. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have watched the IPL and it's been a little bit dreary at times in this UAE leg. Some of the pitches have been pretty pretty slow and low, especially in Sharjah. So, um, yeah, seeing Chennai put up 192 on was a really good track. Uh, I think it was the centre track in Dubai is 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 reassuring from that point of view, I think. Basically, the story of the final, Faf played an incredible innings, opening the batting for Chennai. Him and Guy Quad ended up as first and second in the run charts for the season. So they were obviously a pretty massive part of their success. But yeah, in terms of in terms of how it played out, basically, um, yeah, CS, sorry, Kolkata, I should say, have a very spin-heavy attack. 
Chennai have a lot of good players of spin, but then they have Faf, who is their sort of their one guy who's who's a specialist in smashing seamers. Um, so he he took Lockie Ferguson absolutely to pieces and then kind of nudged it around against spin. And then Robbie Utaper at the age of 35, sort of coming in, one of the one of the creaking old gents, like you mentioned, um, came in and whacked it through the middle. And then uh, Moeen came in at the death and whacked it himself, got them to 192. Um, KKR kind of looked okay, actually, in the chase. They were 90-odd um, for none after 10. Uh, looked pretty well set and then had this huge collapse through the middle. To be honest, I don't think were, the pitch got worse or anything like that. I think it was just a sort of runs on the board pressure thing. And yeah, once they once they lost a couple in quick succession, game was pretty much done. But yeah, I don't think, I definitely didn't have Chennai down as winners at the start of this season. Sort of, they, they were pretty, pretty horrible in the uh, 2020 edition. Didn't really change the squad, but listening to Fleming and Doni afterwards, they're, they're so sort of almost admirably old school in their approach. They, they sort of hate overreacting to small samples. They, they back their guys, they stick with their guys. They use the fewest players out of any team by quite a long way because they just say, you know, if you fail four times, that doesn't mean you're a bad player. It means that you're, in a, in a, you know, having a bit of bad luck and you might succeed on the fifth. So incredibly old school team, as you mentioned, there's sort of, um, yeah, lots of lots of guys who you wouldn't necessarily think would be stars these days. Um, you know, DJ Bravo's kind of reinvented himself at this age and is back to the sort of uh, the guy he probably was about seven or eight years ago, having had a few pretty poor years. And yeah, they, they <laughs> I, I, as I say, would never have had them down as decide to win this year but yeah it was quite an interesting final actually the battle of the two the two captains who have probably contributed the least to their teams uh and <laughs> their old msd and uh owen morgan who's both of whom you know can buy a run for most of the comp but yeah in the end nothing really to do with either of <laughs> the two of them yeah ms came out on top it, it reminds me what you said there of csk about um having a model where they they trust them to perform after a run of bad luck older players, experienced players who perhaps don't quite go on the emotional roller coaster that the younger player might. Quite similar to the West Indies in 2016. I remember they talked a lot about having older players who don't get as affected by performing poorly in the short term. Uh, what lessons from that can we take into the uh, into the T20 World Cup with teams who are setting up with slightly older squads? Yeah, interesting question. I mean, I suppose England are the team that come to mind as someone who are a particularly old squad. I think Tom Curran's their youngest player at 25 and then after that it's Livingston who's 28. So, yeah, interesting to see whether they go for a similar thing. They might, because of the fact there's so much competition for places, they might stick with it a bit more. And yeah, as you mentioned, West Indies are another really interesting example. Really interested to see how they end up treating Chris Gale through the comp. He's obviously um, been involved in this sort of um, pretty uh, <laughs> pretty strange war of words with a few of the legends out there over the past few weeks um, who have been calling his place into question. And I think he, he delivered a classic... Um, sort of uh, the bad side of Gale where he got 10 off 25 or something like that in a warm-up yesterday. But yeah, equally, he's the guy that could come in and hit 100 off 50 and uh, win them the comp. So, Just before we move off the IPL final specifically, can you just shower us with some love about Shadal Dakur, who's a, who's a final <laughs> word favourite? We've been following his career very closely uh, through the course of 2021 across the formats and had his save with three wickets in that final. Yeah, it was kind of a, a classic Shardul performance where he ends up, uh, you know, he's the top guy when the broadcasters put up the thing about uh, top bowlers for the innings or whatever, despite the fact he was the most expensive, to conceded 30, 38, I think, in his four overs. Um, took three wickets, kind of made the key breakthroughs as well. I think he took the first two 
which kind of changed the game entirely. And yeah, I, you know, you just kind of know that if he does play at the World Cup for India, he's going to absolutely mop up, bowling some really grim <laughs> off-cutters at the death, but it's going to work brilliantly. Um, you know, we saw, I, there was that T20 series earlier in the year, India-England and Ahmedabad, where, yeah, England had a load of left-handers in the middle order. So he just thought, right, I'm just going to bowl some off-cutters, see what happens. And obviously he completely mopped up bowling the most innocuous stuff you've ever seen. But um, yeah, I think he's, I think he's a real hero. <laughs> Speaking of mopping up bowling innocuous stuff, Curtis Kempfer, um, the the four in four. I now I've, I've mostly thought of him as a batting player. You know, he's, he does a he, he does bowl, but he's he wouldn't sort of be the first one you'd throw the ball to to run through a side. I've never watched on. TV, you know, live while the game's going on to see someone take four and four before. And it was it was an accumulation of, you know, not some of the most damaging bowling you, you'll ever see, but but just an absurd thing to watch regardless um, to, to see somebody do such a rare thing. Yeah, I, I was pretty surprised um, that Ireland actually gave him a second over because I think his first went for 13 or 14 and he even said afterwards, you know, the first one didn't go to plan still finding his way back after some ankle surgery in the summer. And I don't think, you know, I think he said himself he didn't bowl at his best. But yeah, it was quite something, wasn't it? I think uh, I think that one of the best bits of it is that you what you'd love from a 4-4 four four, when Malinga did it a couple of years ago was this amazing sort of late tail, Yorkers, stumps flying everywhere, all this sort of thing. Campfers, two of them were uh, given not out on field and overturned on review. And then one of them was a, a, that filthy drag on for the four, fourth one. Um, so there's actually only one good wicket in terms of it looks good on a highlights reel. But yeah, I mean, fair play to him. I think he's a real sort of... As you say, he looks pretty innocuous. Um, he looks kind of like a 50-over dobber from the from the sort of noughties era uh, where you could get away with that. But yeah, he, he's, he's a real gem, I think. Uh, yeah, Colo, we were both at that uh, ODI series last summer where he made his debut against England and looked like the, the, the standout player, I suppose. Obviously, um, the series is probably best remembered for that run chase, um, which he wasn't particularly involved in in the third game. But in the first two, he was the one Irish guy who really had anything about him, had any kind of fight. Um, but yeah, fair play to him. It was, uh, yeah, quite a feat. It goes, goes down in the history books with Malinga and Rashid Khan. Good company. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, he's a yard quicker than that. I mean, he was he was a quicker bowler before his ankle surgery. I'm actually surprised he's playing in the tournament. I, I interviewed him a number of times before he made his debut last year. He's an interesting story, uh, Camfer, in terms of quite early on identifying, despite playing for the... South African 19s, he, he kind of sniffed the breeze a bit. He's like, I'm more likely to have an international career using my Irish passport and made that shift and actually made the move to live in Ireland as well. So he's committed to this uh, and he's a lovely young kid and I'm thrilled to see him have some success in his first global tournament. I also love the fallout. Jeff, when we were growing up as kids, four wickets in four balls was a double hat trick and I think I've worked out why we just said it um, so routinely. It's because... We grew up playing indoor cricket because indoor cricket was massive in Australia in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Tristan Lavalette wrote a beautiful piece in the Cricket Monthly a few years ago documenting this surge that started in Western Australia and, and went around the country. Double hat-tricks are quite common, or four in a row, is, and even triple hat-tricks, five in a row, does happen mm-hmm. in indoor cricket. And you, you get credited with the wicket in indoor with a run out as well as a bowler. Mm-hmm. So in turn, I reckon we were so conditioned to using that jargon that yesterday everyone just said it and then everyone in England said, 
what the fuck is a double hat trick? <laughs> Why are you saying four in four? And I'd never, Mate, I'd never thought do, about it. I'd never tested it. I'd never considered it. But geez, Twitter blew up. Do your maths, England. Like we're not a mathematically strong show. We admit that. But a do- it's a double hat trick because there are two hat tricks. Three <laughs> wickets in three balls is a hat trick. That's the first three, and then the last three. That's also a hat trick. Two hat tricks is a double hat trick. Oh, it should be six in six balls. No, six in six balls is four hat tricks. You it's morons. A hat trick. It's four separate <laughs> it's four separate hat tricks. Each sequence of three wickets in three balls is a hat trick. So if there are two different sequences, those are two hat tricks. It's not that complicated. Sort it out. You're gonna get so much you're gonna get pelters for saying that because last night the number of people that piled Idiots. into myself Absolute and Brian for bringing this to the broader attention. We'd never tested it before and, and here we are. That's Twitter for you. But yes, Ireland got the job done with Paul Sterling, model of fitness at the moment, Paul Sterling up, smashed 30 not out. Gareth Delaney, 44. And opened the bowling. Yeah, <laughs> Gareth Delaney, by the way, he's a likely type, isn't he, Heavy? I, I like his leg breaks too, but gives it a whack. Yeah, he. Um, I think he got. He took pelters from KP last summer, uh, Shokara, who didn't like his stance too much because he has one of the, he, yeah, he sort yeah. of has the most baseball style stance I've ever seen where he just has an incredibly high back lift. And when it goes wrong, like he got yorked yesterday, having hit a few really big bombs. And it looked terrible when he got York because it looked like he had no idea what he was doing. But when he hits it, it stays here. It's um, yeah. I've, I remember. I think he. Came, I think he burst through um, start of 2020. He played this T uh, 20 series in the Caribbean. I think he hit Hayden Walsh Jr. for something like four sixes in an over or something like that. And he's one of it's sort of quite a, a few of these younger Irish guys. I mean, we mentioned Camphor as well. Um, then Harry Tector's probably a bit more um, anchor style, maybe more of a 50 over player in the middle. They've got the guy with the best nickname in the World Cup keeping wicket for them, Neil Rock, who's known as Pebbles. And then uh, the, the left arm seamer, Josh Little's very good. Uh, and yeah, I've, I've can't say I've seen a lot of the guy who was bowling leg spin yesterday, Ben White, but um, yeah, suddenly having had this golden generation that's, you know, gradually being phased out, probably the last time we'll see Kevin O'Brien in a World Cup, for example. Yeah, suddenly bringing through this exciting young group who we've heard a lot about from people in Irish cricket over the past couple of years and the results haven't always been there, but yeah, they had a quite a statement win almost over quite a strong looking Netherlands team yesterday. Um, and yeah, who knows? Hopefully they can get through to the sort of round two or uh, group stage proper and, you know, ruffle a few feathers. Yeah, Netherlands, strong team, uh, and they won the qualifier. It feels like a million years ago, but it, it's tw- it's 23 months since that qualifier finished for this competition. Of course, it's been delayed by 12 months, but Netherlands are stronger yet again with players they've been able to recruit. And Ryan Tendiscata, who's still going around at age 41, despite the fact that he's retired at Essex. Sri Lanka accounted for Namibia comfortably. As you'd expect there, they bowled them out for 96. Sri Lanka will get through comfortably there into the into the main part. Um, Scotland beating Bangladesh. What a game of cricket this was. Jared Kimber had on Twitter that like it's Scotland's first great World Cup win. And you think about it, they've played in a lot of global tournaments, but that is a big scalp considering that Bangladesh are number six in the world. They've just thrashed Australia 4-1 at home. These are conditions which should suit. And they also had a good series against New Zealand, who, won, who are one of the, the favoured teams in this competition overall. So Scotland getting up as they did with Chris Greaves, who's only played eight games of professional cricket. He's 31 years of age. He's come from pretty much club cricket uh, to make 45 from 28 after Scotland were like 50 for five early on and then picked up two wickets with his leg breaks. Yeah, it was an incredible game. Uh, yeah, when you consider where they were as well. I mean, you mentioned Bangladesh. They actually looked the part for the first uh, you know, quarter or so of that game when they had Scotland 50-odd for, for six. Um, they got, you know, Shaqib obviously uh, 
is has been around the traps for years. And then uh, they, they've got Tascan Ahmed opening the bowling, who is hitting a sort of 92 miles an hour or, you mm. know, pushing 150 Ks. And uh, then the Fizz and Cy Fudin both look pretty good as well. So I thought, you know, this looks like a Bangladesh team that could probably beat a few uh, really big sides. They've obviously come in off a good record, albeit on fairly extreme pitches. But yeah, I think I think Greaves almost had a certain old school um, unknown factor about him because I think more and more you see... Even teams like Bangladesh will plan very extensively for Scotland. So immediately they knew that Munzi, the opener who loves a reverse sweep, they had a deep point out for him in the power play. So you see the uh, the analysis that goes into it, the planning that goes into it these days, even for a, a game against a team who might not play that many games where there's footage. But Greaves, obviously, at 30 and having only really played club cricket, there's almost nothing on him. So he was hitting some outrageous shots in weird areas, like switch hitting over cover and stuff like that. And it looked like they didn't really have too much of a plan for him. Hit 45 pretty quickly, got them up to 140, which looked a bit short of par. And then, yeah, with the ball, bowled these sort of uh, like 65 mile an hour leg breaks, some turned, some didn't. Looked real old school sort of club stuff, but uh, took two for 19 from three and uh, got a got his first ball was an absolutely filthy drag down, you know, pitched halfway down the pitch. And yeah, Shakib, Hit it straight down deep in Wicket's throat. So, yeah, amazing story. I think Carl Kurtzer, the captain, said that he'd been working for Amazon as a delivery guy during the pandemic literally a year ago. So it's one of these sort of uh, classic stories that you quite often get in this this uh, weird round one of the World Cup. But, um, yeah, it was a seriously good performance and a seriously good win. And they have enough good players, I think, Scotland. If you look at that, uh, the opening bowlers of Brad Will and Josh Davey, both very good county pros, have enough players that if they do get through, they could again, you know, hopefully cause an upset and upset someone if they if they get on the right track and things go go well for them. They'd have to be very likely to get through now. And I guess the other thing is that there's there's not a lot of jeopardy for, say, Bangladesh because two sides go through. So, you know, even though they've had this loss, they just need to make sure they win their other games and um, they'll be able to get through second, even if they were expecting to qualify first. Um, Oman beat PNG in in that match was the only other one that we've had so far. But it, it, it doesn't feel like there's a huge risk for the teams like Ireland or, or Bangladesh or Sri Lanka, which are probably expected to be stronger given there are two spots per group. Yeah, I think I think it's probably a good thing though. Uh, remembering back to 2016 when it was effectively the same format, but only one team uh, going through from the four. I think Ireland lost their f- first game and closed one to Oman, and then the second game was a washout, which meant they were out of the tournament basically. From um, you know, I think associate teams are used to it, they call it sort of cricket with consequences is the classic phrase that flies around, and they're very much used to that. But equally, it, it I think especially when you consider the probably inherent randomness of T20 compared to 50 over cricket in particular the idea that one guy can have a day out and that decides a game I think it maybe makes it slightly more just that teams get that opportunity to maybe have one bad game equally you know it's not completely beyond the realms of possibility that Bangladesh could get turned over by Oman on their home patch Um, I I think uh, yeah I'm pretty sure that Bangladesh will get through but equally it would be it, yeah, I can I can see Oman having, you know, swatted PNG aside pretty uh, comprehensively. I can see them coming in with quite a lot of confidence. They look like they've got some pretty useful players, especially um, the two openers who, who knocked off the runs without any any real danger. So yeah, hopefully we get an interesting last round of group games in a couple of days' time. And 
yeah, there's uh, there's plenty on the line. Yeah, Jatinder Singh with his unbeaten 73 and 42 balls. He, he finished it with a six. He, he looked really good, didn't he? They beat PNG by 10 wickets, but PNG, it's a bit cliche to say what a great story for a team playing in a competition like this, but PNG, what a great story. I mean, again, <laughs> a lot of people have, have written about them in the last few years under Asad Vala, who made a half century and kind of saved things when they lost a bunch of early wickets. Indeed, they lost two wickets before they scored, uh, and I think they absorbed 11 dot balls as well or, or something like that in that in that competition opener coming up against Oman on their home ground but PNG probably won't win a game but this is an important stepping stone for them as they have continued to to turn heads in the associate game yeah they've been quite unfortunate as well I think compared to most of the teams in this first round they've barely played any cricket um over the past well what is it 23 months did you say since the qualifier yeah. so um I think that is a, a huge factor to consider because I think if the PNG team of October 2019 or whenever it was was playing this uh, this competition. I think they might have done significantly better. Equally, yeah, even though they they you know they lost by ten wickets, it's a bit patronising to say they were you know positives or whatever. They were actually in an all right spot at one point. Um, there were I think uh, eighty odd for two. Vala and uh, Charles Amini were. Uh, looking pretty handy, but then yeah, they had this collapse through, yeah, Zishan Maxud bowling some some sort of Mike Yardy style non-turning left arm spin, which was a real shame because I thought you know they might they might uh, post 150 odd and make it an interesting game, but yeah, I, as you say, it's um it's it's huge for them to be there in the first place, and uh, hopefully they can uh, I think hopefully show a few more of the things that people have talked about. Like uh, there's been a lot written about their fielding and the idea of them sort of hunting in a pack and uh, being, being one of the best fielding teams in the comp being incredibly uh, dedicated in their training towards it. Um, So hopefully we can see a little bit more of that in the last couple of games. And even if they do end up played three, lost three, we have, uh, you know, that abiding memory, whatever it might be like a viral catch or something like that from PNG's involvement in the comp. And if nothing else, they have, uh, I think, Probably by far and away the best kit. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah, well, especially with the baggy cap in a T20. Yeah. Like that. Um, just to, before we round this up, uh, Heavy, uh, the warm-up games that have been played. So we've already touched on England, who got beaten by India by seven wickets. Ishan Kishan, unbeaten 70 from 46 balls. Will he replace Rohit Sharma? What's this space? Uh, King legend Rahul's opening the batting, which is good for all of us who uh, enjoy uh, the work of the Indian right-hander. Kane Richardson took three for 24 for Australia uh, in keeping New Zealand to 158. Josh Inglis won the game, batting at number nine. Inglis batting at number nine, work that out. But um, Smith, Stoinis, Marsh and Smith, um, sorry, Smith, Stoinis, Marsh and Smith. There's one other player there who I've uh, written down incorrectly. All made 20s and 30s. Uh, Warner made a golden duck. Wade made a, a two-ball duck. Uh, Matt, if you can just run us through, well, and by the way, Josh Hazelwood is obviously coming from an IPL victory, but uh, unclear whether he'll be in the first 11 on the basis that Australia will have to play two spinners. But where do you see uh, the top seven at for Australia going into this competition, especially when there's a player in the squad like Inglis who looks like he's ready? It's a really interesting team. I think I think back to the 2016 tournament where Australia basically picked, I think, what was it, five openers or something like that as their top five. <laughs> Ended up, I think they had... Warner at number four and it's this perennial problem with Australia where everyone is an opener and then the big sort of solution over the last however long in those Caribbean and Bangladesh tours seem to be uh, Mitch Marshall bat three which to be fair he seems to have done really well but I don't think that necessarily actually solves that much down the line because it means it pushes Smith down to potentially number four which then leaves Maxwell maybe out of position and I think Maxwell has to bat number four I can't really work out what Wade is doing in the side at number five because his record in the middle order is really, really bad. 
his record at the top of the order is really, really good. If there's one thing you want him to do, it's smash quicks in the power play. And if there's one thing you don't want him to do, it's face spinners when the field's back in the middle overs. And if there's one thing you do want Josh Inglis to do, it's exactly what Wade can't do. So for me, I would have Inglis in for Wade. Um, I don't really know how it all fits together. But equally, you know, personally, I think Australia will probably come third in the group uh, behind West Indies and England. But equally, the thing I keep coming back to is there are enough players in that side who can have a day out and win a game that even all these structural problems may end up not being an issue at all. Because, you know, you look at England have planned for three years or whatever, but equally, how are they going to stop Maxwell if he has a day out? I'm not sure they are. Um, so I think, yeah, personally, I see Australia as the third best team in that group. But yeah, I don't think it's necessarily uh, a case that they're guaranteed to to go out at the group stage. And just uh, relooping on that Hazelwood question with Australia's bowling group, because Cummins and Stuck play, I would imagine, regardless of the situation, Agar and Zampa. Then you'll have a swingman like Mitch Marshall bowl, bowl some useful overs. But whether there's room for an out-and-out third seamer in that part of the world, it feels unlikely. Yeah, hard to say. I think it'll depend a bit on pitches. I think Australia will also have looked at that, um, that how good Hazelwood has been since playing uh, sort of much more regularly in the IPL. Um, I think he, you know, he could potentially be a guy that you, you know, throw the new ball to and say bowl three overs in the power play because he's he's been that impressive for Chennai. Um, I think he was he was really good in that final as well, actually against um, KKR that we mentioned earlier. So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a it's, it's a difficult side to stitch together. I think there's um, as is as is the case with most international T20 teams. To be honest, I think there's a lot of issues around balance because I think uh, you know I don't see any team in this tournament and I think they they have a side where they can. Uh, have a, have as many bowling options as they want and also bat as deep as they want. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I, I my my I would probably go with Hazelwood over someone like Kane Richardson personally, but I don't know whether you can actually squeeze them all into the same team. Might be tricky, but um, yeah, I think I see Australia. Yeah, going in with those two spinners plus some Martian potentially Stoinis overs plus potentially Maxwell as well. Um, so I think, yeah, they'll probably end up having, they'll probably end up going bowling deep rather than batting deep. All right, Matt Rowell, that's been fantastic. Thanks for uh, your insight on the final word today. I think you're on debut, aren't you? I don't think we've had you on the show before, but um, I, I suspect uh, it'll be the first of many appearances. Enjoy your first overseas trip. It's always special uh, as a journalist to go abroad for the first time and do your thing. Uh, if you want to follow Matt's work through the tournament, I strongly recommend it. I'll be reading it every day on ESPN Crick Info, and we'll catch up with you when you're over in the UAE. Thanks again. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Much appreciated. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, as we wrap it up. Thanks again to Matt Roller, who put in a sterling job on Taboo on the podcast today, the young man. Uh, looking forward to, as I say, reading him over there. And I would say that we will get him back for some of our daily shows, Jeff, which are starting on Saturday. So uh, the next uh, podcast you see dropped in your final word feed will be uh, our uh, daily show, which will go uh, throughout every playing day of the competition from Saturday. And we will, yeah, it'll be you and me, but we'll bring in other people who are over in the UAE as well. Well, actually, the next podcast will be Storytime, which will be there on Saturday morning and then in Australian time. Oh, yes. And then the podcast will be there Sunday morning because the thing starts Saturday night, I believe. I believe. You're right. No, no, you're right. I've got that wrong. Yes. I'm, I'm 24 hours out. So there'll be Storytime that mm-hmm. comes first, then the first of 20 mm. 
daily shows. There's 20 playing days. And we're not ignoring uh, the, the cricket being played this week, by the way. It's just that our fundamental objection to the ICC calling this the World Cup this week, this is the qualifying tournament. They've bunged on the front uh, as an act of appeasement. This has mm-hmm. nothing to do... The World Cup starts on Saturday. Um, the World Cup should be uh, bigger. The World Cup should include all teams from the get-go, but it doesn't. So this is our, um, mm. our, our tacit protest. Yes. Uh, now, we won't necessarily, both of us, be on all of the shows. There'll be a bit of changing of dance partners through the daily shows and so on, but they, they will be with you um, as soon as possible after the conclusion of the match. So that should mean that if you're in Australia, it'll be the perfect thing to wake up to if you haven't sat up all night like I have watching the match until (laughs) five in the morning and then recording the show, you will be able to get up at, say, six, hopefully, um, and hit play on your phone and get a 15-minute, 20-minute recap of what's gone on the night before. It should be fun. It'll be the half World Cup compared to what we did in 2019. Yeah, and all the usual bits you're familiar with, the 30-second summary, the Hall of Fame, uh, that will all be there. It'll be on video on YouTube. My expectation is it might do quite well on YouTube being a T20 World Cup. So if that's not the medium you've been uh, enjoying the daily shows uh, earlier in the year, that's where they live too. So you can uh, see... Jeff sitting uh, in his living room and me standing probably more often than not in, in my backyard here in London. We'll see. That is the final word for another week. Uh, thank you to Matt Roller again for joining us. Thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, we have continued to remain ahead of James Anderson uh, this month, which is quite gratifying. Um, the Discord channel, as I mentioned uh, earlier on, is kicking off. It's popping. So uh, be part of the conversation there. Patron.com forward slash the final word. I should say that we've got some We've just started having the conversation about live shows if you're in Australia. Of course, subject to COVID restrictions and all the rest of it, but we are touchwood slowly but surely working towards a couple of live shows in Australia, uh, maybe just before the Ashes and maybe one during the Ashes. Uh, we'll have more to say about that and we'll consult our, our Discord patrons about that as we work our way through. Uh, thank you to the good people at Brick Lane Brewing, Brick, bricklanebrewing.com, and you can pick up some of their fine brews and ales. Uh, and, of course, to Woodstock Cricket, woodstockcricket.co.uk, TFW20, into the payment bar and get yourself 20% off one of the best cricket bags in the world. I've been Adam Collins. He, of course, is Jeff Lennon. Can't wait to do it all again. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. And there's some stories I can tell you. Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at finalwordcricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. Finalwordcricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks once again to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at bricklanebrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.